You can want to tell a story in which everybody in the world is the same and everything in the world is just like everything else. That's a story people really like to tell. Or you can want to tell a story about how things are not the same and yet equally human. Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And this episode is a bit of a special one. It's brought to you by the widely successful, beloved Broadway musical, Fun Home, whose ads you've probably been hearing on our show for the last several weeks. But today, you get the unique opportunity to learn about lyricist and writer of the musical, Lisa Crone. We're honored to be working with the Fun Home team to bring you this exclusive interview. Fun Home is a musical adaptation of Alison Bechtel's graphic novel of the same name and tells the story of Bechtel in different stages of her life as she realizes her own sexuality while simultaneously coming to understand her father's. In 2015, it took home Tony Awards for Best Musical, Best Direction, Best Actor, Best Book of a Musical, and Best Original Score, which made Lisa and composer Janine Tesori the first writing team of women to win that award. Fun Home was Lisa's first experience working on a musical. A majority of her career involves non-musical theater. She's written and performed in numerous award-winning plays, including 2.5-Minute Ride and Well, both of which are autobiographical. Lisa is a founding member of the Obie and Bessie award-winning theater company, Five Lesbian Brothers, and recipient of playwriting fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and Sundance Theater Lab, to name a few. We could go on, but we'd rather bring the woman herself up on stage. Lisa invited us over to have this conversation in the library of her Little Brooklyn apartment. The fire trucks were not invited, but they showed up anyway. Were, do you want me to wait? It's that, it's <laughs> that, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. At some point it'll have to stop, but there must be. Oh, I think there's calming down. Once they get there. Because okay. <laughs> there's something making funny. Every time we stop, they stop. <laughs> la, 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 la. Lisa says that everything you need to know about theater can be found by reading. But not just the plays themselves, and not just writing by any Joe Sixpack. Lisa swears by the essays of Thornton Wilder, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and novelist, and apparently theater genius. So I will say this first as he said it, which is much more economical, which is that novels talk about what happened. In theater, you see things happening. You're in the present moment. He talks about how it's... um, that theater exists on the eternal razor's edge of the present moment. The thing that I really started to think about a couple years ago is that theater is made out of the condition of human life, which is the most universal thing. No matter how clever, how well-born, how uh, connected, how lucky, not one of us knows what is going to happen in the next moment. And we project narratives backwards and forwards because otherwise we would lose our mind. We tell ourselves, this is where I'm going in the future. We tell ourselves, this is what happened in the past. But in fact, what is about to happen is there is no possible way of knowing it. There's also what is going to happen in the future, which is the complete unknowability of death, which is also universal. Or those moments when we feel collectively, we feel that thing of how we don't know what's going to happen next. When it, when it c- comes into sharp relief, which is at a deathbed, at a birth, on an, an amusement park, at a sporting event, in a disaster. It's what everybody felt after 9-11. And you feel 
alive. That's why we feel collectively alive at that at those moments, and that the present is unfolding into the unknown. That is what theater is made out of. Before the present unfolds any further, we're going to take a step back into the past. Welcome to Lansing, Michigan, in the 60s, mostly populated by white Christian families. This is where Lisa grew up, but her family didn't fit neatly into the picture. Lisa's father was a German-born Jewish man who escaped the Holocaust in 1937 and eventually met Lisa's mother in the United States. While Lisa was growing up, her mom was an activist, working to desegregate Lansing's neighborhoods, and Lisa herself attended a predominantly black high school. Lisa remembers being outgoing, a kid that was interested in humor, but definitely not a writer. I didn't know how to write uh, at all. I couldn't really figure out how dialogue worked. It seemed so weird that you wanted to have this thing happen, but people were going to say other things to get from here. I just really couldn't figure it out. But I did tell funny stories. My family were all funny stories. You know, my family loves a funny anecdote. And when I was a kid, I was really interested in being funny. I had this goal when I was like in probably starting the junior high. I wanted to be the girl that people, when they talked about her, they said, she's the funniest girl I know. Like literally, I was like, that's what I want. I want, I want people to say that about me. So then I would just like figure out how to do that and how to tell a funny story. And for a girl then, probably now too, but certainly then, it was like, oh, there's this fine line between being funny and obnoxious. And I've got to figure out like how to handle that. I think also because I wasn't, you know, I was, I had no, now obviously because I was a lesbian, but I didn't know how to flirt. I wasn't a pretty girl. And what would happen as a result is that I, I d- disappeared. You know, I could feel like I literally was invisible. And it pissed me off, I think. I mean, in some ways I, I enjoyed it. I, I really liked the fact that people literally would not have known I was in the room and then something would happen and then they'd be like, whoa, you're interesting and funny. Where did you come from? When it came time for college, Lisa found herself gravitating towards theater. So that's what she studied at Kalamazoo before landing a role in a national touring company. As thousands and thousands do, she then moved to New York City to be an actor. The person could not have had less of a plan than I had. But then I, you know, somebody uh, said, you know, you should come down here to this, see this show down at the WOW Cafe. And when I went down there, I was like, "I I think the thing that I saw was a, completely new paradigm it was a completely different view of the world and it was I had no idea what it was but I was like I have got to be around this thing I was scared of everything but I was just like drawn to it like a moth to a flame it was the 80s a time when New York's East Village was brimming with little clubs and variety nights that anybody could jump on stage and do 10 minutes at Because of these, Lisa felt as if she was trained like a vaudevillian, testing out different types of acts, figuring out what worked and what didn't. She felt inclined to experiment. I was like, you know what we should do in here? Let's make a play about a bowling alley and let's make a bowling alley and we'll really bowl in this play. And then we did that. But that was the level of artistic uh, ambition. I thought, if I want a career, I need to go back uptown. I need to buy backstage. I need to do auditions. I need to do all that stuff. But this is just like, this is just the most fun thing. This is like being in a clubhouse and we're just like making things to entertain ourselves. I mean, the other thing that happened to me was I was like, there is an electric connection in this room that is unlike any place I've ever been. And it was, you know, it was a living culture. 
an active, dynamic, living culture, I realize now that we were experiencing. I was so lucky. I was so lucky. Lisa received great responses to her comedy bits. But after a while, she became curious about doing longer form work on more serious subject matters. Like her father's experience as a refugee, which she covered in her first critically acclaimed play, 2.5 Minute Ride. This is where her and her father take a trip back to Auschwitz, the scene of his parents' extermination, juxtaposed with her family's annual trip to an amusement park in Ohio. The play premiered in 1996 and was performed all over the world. In 2004, Lisa released Well, an autobiographical play focused on her mother, social activism, and illness. In the following years, Lisa performed in and wrote several other successful plays, and then a graphic novel titled Fun Home landed in her lap. Caption. Fun Home, the graphic memoir, was written and illustrated by Alison Bechtel in 2006. It's set in rural Pennsylvania in the 60s and 70s and tells Alison's story of growing up, realizing she's a lesbian, this is what I have of you. but also realizing her father's struggle with his own sexuality. You ordering me to sweep and dust the parlor. The story unfolds as present-day Allison revisits memories of her youth, dealing with themes of gender identity, complex family relationships, and death. And designer cologne. You calling me at college to tell me how I'm supposed to feel about Faulkner or Hemingway. You standing on the shoulder of Route 150, bracing yourself against the pulse of the trucks rushing past. You succumbing to a rare moment of physical contact with me. Enter Lisa Crone, who, when this fun home opportunity came about, had zero experience writing musicals and wasn't so familiar with graphic novels. But I recognized something in what Allison was doing in that form, a kind of an essayistic meditation, starting from personal stories and then interrogating bigger issues than that. So I recognized in her work an interest in the construction of personal narratives, what's behind them, the motivations, a, a recognition and an interest in what gets left out of a personal narrative and the disconnect between um, the memory of an event and actual lived events moving forward in time. And this is the part Lisa was familiar with, dramatizing personal narrative and working with memory, with the abstract. And in this case, she would be adapting a graphic novel. You know, we knew that we were going to have to re-originate a new work of art based on that. It was going to have to be created out of whole cloth. We certainly wanted people to be able to have a full experience of it if they'd never read the book. But we wanted people who knew and loved that book to feel like they had had a alternate experience of the book. And there was no reason not to do that because that book is a masterpiece. Even up until the last rewrites, we were still looking at the book to see what was there. We always went back to see what was there. And then we would feel free to create whatever, but we always went back to the book. Theater, like many art forms, is highly collaborative, starting out with only a few, but growing into a sizable team. Lisa says it all starts with the writer's vision and the text. Out of seven total years that it took to develop Fun Home, the musical, Lisa spent the first year, 2008, working out some ideas before seeking her main collaborator. I mean, the only person that I could imagine would could compose it was Janine Tesori. I never met her. I just knew Carolina Change, which I thought was the, you know, just extraordinary. And based on that, I just, I mean, I couldn't think of another person to do it. I didn't know if she would agree, 
And we met, and she sat down, and she was holding the book, and she said, I cannot imagine how this can become a musical. And my heart just sank. And she said, and that's why I'm interested in doing it. And then I was just like, yes, you are the shit. You are, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The person who's interested in the thing that feels like there's something, there's some dynamic there that is just beyond their grasp. And in fact, you know, that was the nature of our collaboration all the way through. Janine Tesori is a prolific composer and musical arranger who has received both Tony and Drama Desk Awards for the shows she's written music for, including Shrek the Musical. I really can't say enough about the depth and breadth of talent uh, that is contained in Janine Tesori. There's a, there's a humility to the way that she works. There's a, a kind of a radical openness to her. You know, it's it, to me, it's the sign of the greatest kind of artist to be able to have that kind of complete openness and total mastery of form. I think both of us have a very similar rigor, and we have a very similar ability to not know, you know, to say... Uh, it's not clear where we're going to go next. So we're just going to try this and try this and try this until we find the right thing. It, it, none of us have a problem giving up work that's not right for work that's better. When we started working, I, I think in my outline, I had a number of places where I was like, this this could be a song, this could be a song, this could be a song. I don't think she ever used the word no, <laughs> but it was like, mm, okay, uh, no, you know, but, but clearly it was like, that those are not songs. And it took me a really long time to figure out how a song worked. And we spent a really long time with me writing l lyrics. There'd be pages of writing and she would go scan down the page and say, that's not a lyric, that's not a lyric. And then all of a sudden there'd be like two lines and she would say, now that's a lyric. And I'd be like, what's the difference? What's the difference between that and that? Quick dashes mark, the property ends, Beach Creek. She is funny. She is caring. She is warm. I think I am all of those things as well. We create a really good room, but you know, it's not personal. You get your work done. You know, I also think we're both tough. And there was this moment where we've been working for a long time and I was not, we didn't have a song. I was not able to figure it out. And I went in and I said to her, Janine, I feel like, and it was a horrible conversation. I said, I feel like this, there's I feel like we're having a problem and we might need to bring in another lyricist. And she said, yeah, I think you're right. I've been thinking about this as well. And I was like, oh, okay. We, you know, we talked about it for a while and talked about who it might be. And I think the thought of it was so unbearable to me that I went home that night and I did this work and I came in and she was like, oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and then we were on the other side of it. But, you know, she had a tremendous amount of patience First of all, to wait for that long. I mean, I think she she likes working with people who aren't trained as lyricists because she feels like there's a freshness to those lyrics that doesn't always happen if you're, you know, sort of trained that they need to work like this. It's, you know, writing lyrics is the hardest thing. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm very, if you couldn't tell so far in this podcast, extremely long-winded person. And lyrics are all about compression and also metaphor. And I don't naturally think in metaphor either. I'm really pretty direct. 
God was born on this farm. Here's our house. Here's the spot where he died. I can draw a circle. His whole life fits inside. I think the other thing that takes a while to figure out about lyrics is that Music theater is a weird form. It is not naturalistic. And if you go into it thinking that you're writing natural in a naturalistic way, it's not right. And there are all these different modes in which they operate. You know, sometimes people are singing collectively, you know, like Iowa Stubborn and the Music Man. You know, like, what's happening in that song? What's happening? The whole town is singing, describing themselves. You know, that's so weird. Tradition, who are they singing to? What is the... How is that happening? And yet, it makes total sense to us when we see it, and it feels just weirdly like human behavior, even though it's so strange. Every successful musical is weird. So there are a lot of options. You know, I'm collaborating right now on a piece with Peter Lerman, who's a composer, and he said there are so many choices. Is this part of what you want to accomplish? Is it accomplished by what by the lyrics? Is it accomplished by the music? Is it accomplished by the orchestra? Is it accomplished by the staging? There are so many choices. So how do you choose the medium if that is the... Because like, you're also the writer. Yeah. You, you get to choose that from the beginning. You get right? to choose it. I, I think you, you know, it's, so it's a very intuitive form in a way. And it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, I mean, you know, I was guided by Janine. And then I would write... And then, you know, I'd write book scenes and then and we'd talk about where the songs were and what they would encompass and what they would hold. And it was very confusing. You know, there's no through, there's no narrative through line. So we had to create that. And then to figure out what would be held in these songs, you know, there's an incredible amount of expositional compression. And then we would talk about it more and then I'd go off and write more. And at some point, something would coalesce in her head and she'd be like, oh, okay, I think I see the song. And she would take a lot of the sort of sketches for lyrics I had written and she would take some of them and she would come back with some version of a song. He wants the Heppel White sweet chairs back in the parlor. Move the G.I. Joe, it can't be on the floor. So for instance, when she wrote, Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue, I had written, you know, the first two lines of that, and so she put that in, and then that allowed her to hear what the verse sounded like. So she would put, you know, lyrics that I had written in part of the verse. She'd sing the shape of the rest of the verse, and then she took other lyrics and she made some version of that chorus, but then she la 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 through the rest of the song, and then she gave it to me, and then, then I could just, you know, figure out the rest of the... Fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks. <laughs> Except a lot more challenging than just that. Yes, a lot more challenging. Also, because the thing about that is then that, you know, each verse has to do something slightly different than the previous verse. You know, it, it keeps developing, and how does it develop? He wants, he wants, he wants. Where's my bronzing stick? It's in the... Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue. See how we polish and we shine. We The adaptation from graphic novel to play took the shape of three versions of the character Allison, young, medium, or college age, and adult. Adult Allison is our guide. She talks to us. She observes scenes of the young Allison interacting with her family, who, by the way, live in a funeral home that her dad runs, or medium Allison calling home from college. It sounds complicated, but when you see it in action, it really, really works. I knew you would have to be able to see the adult Allison in juxta, you know, because it was about what she knows 
based on what the characters looking back against what the characters moving forward in time don't know, that that was the dramatic tension of the piece and that the audience would feel it. The characters don't feel it. I mean, each one of those scenes does have a little arc, but nothing in those scenes has a dramatic action in the sense that there's nothing that happens in any one of those scenes that alters the course of their lives. Those are weird scenes. They're weird scenes for actors to play. Actors are looking for the moment of transformation. They're looking for the thing that's happening. And to get them to, you know, not heighten things, but just to let things play out, because it's the audience watching that against that, you know, that this person says this thing, having no idea what's going to happen years down the road. The best actors don't editorialize their lines. They don't tell you how you're supposed to feel about them. You know, they don't project, this is the sad part. They are people moving forward in time. You know, they let the audience feel what they're going to feel. I mean, Madeline sometimes also says, all my best quotes are Madeline's, by the way. Madeline George is Lisa's spouse and partner. She's a playwright, a novelist, and a treasure trove of excellent quotes. Art is not made of feelings. Feelings are what happen to people when they consume art. So I would write, and then at some point, we would just have to go into workshop. We went to Sundance, and we did workshops at the public, and so that we could look at actors in space. And, you know, the hardest character to write was the adult Allison that Beth Malone plays, because we didn't want her to be a narrator. We needed her to be in her own present moment. We needed her to be different at the end of the piece than she is at the beginning of the piece. In a graphic novel, you can just say, this is true. But in the theater, everything that happens, there has to be a character-based, forward-moving reason why that thing is revealed. Days and days and days Made of posing and bragging And fits of rage And boys, my God, some of them underage And oh, how did it happen here there was a time your father swept me off my feet with words. working on fun home was a deep dive and exercise into craft but one of the major challenges lisa and the team faced was making sure that things truly resonated with the audience a play has a point of view and it has an idea and it has a set of things that it is interrogating i do think you want to have some clarity about what those things are you're interrogating. So resonance that is earned opens out into a coherent idea about the things that you're interrogating. And resonance that is not earned has the rhythm and the sound of something that is doing that, but but there's not coherence in it. You do want to make things resonate, but when you make them resonate, you want them to resonate with content underneath. You're not telling people anything in the theater. You're not telling people anything in art. You're holding juxtaposition. You're making a replicated version of it out of imagination. I mean, I, I think, you know, in terms of the theater particularly, which only takes place, unlike movies, books, paintings, anything else, it only exists when it is being performed. It is a collective imaginative uh, experience. We're all trapped in our own consciousnesses. And in the theater, it's this place where we enter into a collective consciousness. It's like a trick that we do to enter into the consciousness of 
others. We leave ourselves and we're all Allison, Medium Allison, Bruce, Helen, we are all of those people moving around and we're doing it in real time. You know, it's this, this like, when it works, that's, that's what happens. That's, that's why we are willing to, you know, people who love theater, willing to see many, many, many bad shows, which most shows are bad because it's hard to make good theater. Most art is bad because it's hard to make good art. But we put up with it because in the moments where it really works and you have that collective transcendent experience, there's nothing else like it. You feel connected to humanity. Maybe not right now. Maybe not right now. La, 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 la. Writing for theater is one thing. But Lisa says that writing for musicals is a whole different beast to tame. It's a really, really, really difficult form. It's the hardest. It's the greatest. I think it's the greatest. <laughs> why, why, do you, why do you think that? Can you expand upon your like, ideas of musical theater? It identifies individual human longing and coalesces it into a collective experience. And it's about striving and failing. <laughs> and it's about... Love, they're always about love. As musicals have evolved, I think they've shown us that it can be, it, it is about love between people. It's also about love of people for beauty, for the experience of making things, for their own transformation, for the transformation of the world. You know, traditionally, the people who have taken us on that journey are straight white men and women. Sometimes, African-American couples, but mostly straight white men and women. There are people who have been completely, it has been presumed we couldn't have that experience with them in a musical. Lesbians, disabled people. I think that the lack of lesbians in the theater has been an extension of the limitation on roles for women in general. It, it exists everywhere, obviously. It exists in the arts. It exists in politics. It exists in business. It exists everywhere. It's less than it was but it is you know the the lack of gender parity is still it's it's absurd at this point and i do feel like there is serious change happening now probably unstoppable change we understand our own experience more than we understand other people's experience i think one of the advantages to having um, diversity, you know, m different kinds of writers, different kinds of theater makers, different kinds of filmmakers is that everyone becomes a better writer. You know, we know what people are like because we've seen images of what people are like. And the more different kinds of people can give us those images, the more we're going to know. Also, when we're art makers, you know, I have a tremendously difficult time writing a teenage child. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't, you know, it's not fair to say that every person should be able to write every character equally. It's just not true. But because for whatever set of reasons, we have gotten work primarily, almost exclusively for male writers, the picture we have gotten of the world is that men are human beings and women revolve around them. There, there's a reflexive way in which we only think of them in relationship to men. So I've had experiences in writing where, because I'm very interested in trying to identify this thing. So la last year, um, 
I was noticing a couple of different uh, musicals, roles for women. And and one of them was Betty Comden and Adolph Green. They wrote uh, On the Town. They wrote um, On the 20th Century, two of the you know greatest lyric writing teams of all time. And when you see a Comden and Green musical, it is striking how the female characters are fully formed because Betty Comden was there and she was writing those characters. So On the 20th Century, it's a delightful farce basically comic romp but the woman who's the actress the producer her producer you know man who's in love with her is chasing her on the train and she's she's doesn't want to do whatever it is i can't remember but the point is that her they're in love with each other great but her motivation for what she's doing has to do with herself as an artist it has to do with what she wants her work to be and in their big hilarious duet where they're you know fighting out um what's going to happen next the thing that she's fighting about the thing that she's fighting for and she's a crazy egomaniac and a you know a stereotype of an of a ego-driven actress that being said, the thing that she cares about is plying her art. And the song is also, you know, it's about their jealousy and their relationship too. But that is, that's what's driving her. As we presume is the thing that drives male characters. But there are all kinds of ways you can put women in pivotal roles, in plots, that don't revolve around the fact that they're somebody's mother or they're in love with somebody. And I think there were other musicals that happened where you could see, I felt like I could see these, you know, the creative teams were all men and they were doing a great job but, and they were trying so hard with these female characters, but they could not figure out what to do with them. And, you know, sometimes the songs were about, I want to be useful. It's like, you know what? I don't think this woman would have a hard time figuring out how to be useful. You know, she's got all these things that she does. But I guess I always knew that someday I was going to draw you in cartoons. Yes, Dad, I know. You think cartoons are silly, but I draw cartoons, and I need real things to draw from because I don't trust memory. What is the thing that female characters want that is not about being in love with somebody? or about their responsibility to their family, which is not saying that people don't want that. But in Fun Home, one of the things I was really pushed for and pushed for and pushed for, because it's true, is that Allison, this character of Allison, what was driving her was not that she wanted reconciliation with her father, although that was also true. It was that she knew somehow that she was going to be able to make art out of this thing, and she's a mercenary. She had to figure out the true story because she knew she couldn't make the art she wanted to make until she did that. You want women who are fully fleshed human beings, right? So that's why no lesbians. They they can't be in the you know just there to revolve around the man. And they've I don't know. It's I mean it's been an ugly history of lesbians on Broadway. An ugly kind of, you know, particularly through the 90s and the early 2000s. I felt like there were a lot of like gym teacher characters who'd come on and sometimes the joke was just that they said the word lesbian and it was like really 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 that's the best you can do one of my favorite scenes in fun home takes place in allison's college dorm room at this point in the story 
Allison is just settling into Oberlin College, a historically liberal school, and has made friends with a cool, confident, and out-of-the-closet woman named Joan. You could say that Joan teases the lesbian right out of Allison. Their relationship develops into something more intimate, and in one scene, Allison finds herself in bed after having her first sexual experience with a woman. She's elated, but doesn't want to wake Joan, who is sleeping soundly beside her. What happened last night? Are you really here? Joan, 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 Joan. Hi, Joan! Don't wake up, Joan. Oh my God, last night. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, last night. I got so excited, I was too enthusiastic. Thank you for not laughing while you laughed a little bit. At one point when I was touching you and said I might lose consciousness, which you said was adorable. And People would often say, you know, this is a, the moment where she falls in love. And I was like, eh, yeah, maybe. But really what happens is that she has sex. And it's very important in this story. I mean, it was important to me because I thought, you know, there is that like... The lesbians like are gonna we're gonna go into soft focus and they're gonna you know sort of stroke each other and whisper in French and I was like no 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 we're not gonna do that um, and you know from my work with the five lesbian brothers like we you know I wanted to have that sort of drive of that feeling of like that pent up passion and then the awkwardness of it I was just like this is a comedy gold mine people we just have to use this. I'm changing my major to Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. With a minor in kissing Joan. Foreign study to Joan's inner thighs. A seminar on Joan's ass in her Levi's. But also, it is crucial to the story. You know, this is the thing that Bruce couldn't do. He couldn't live, her father couldn't live inside of his sexuality. It came out in twisted ways. And she has that experience and her life opens. She's going to be connected to this thing, but it definitely is about sexuality and not only romantic love, although that might be attached. I'm writing a thesis on Joan. It's a cutting-edge field and my mind is blown. I will gladly stay up every night to hone my compulsory skills with like When you're dealing with someone's life, like a story about someone's life, which you had done autobiographical work before, how do you kind of check yourself, like check in and, and say, because, you know, it's not always exactly accurate. You know, you have mm-hmm. to make it entertainment for mm-hmm. the audience too. But so how... How sensitive were you, and um, how did you kind of check in with Allison, and how, how did that, what did that look like, that relationship, and making sure that... Well, we were not adapting Allison's life. We were adapting her book, and we felt very clear about that. If you're writing from your own life, you can go into the file cabinet and pull other things out. We couldn't do that with her. I want to know what's true. So we had no choice but to treat it as fiction and to make things up. You know, all of those scenes are invented. There are no scenes in the book. It feels like there are. But there's a panel, you know, where Roy comes to the house. Whoa, nice room. (laughs) Uh, Here's the wallpaper. It's not William Morris, but it's close. It's pretty close. You read all these books? Oh, working on it. That is not something I can imagine. (laughs) No, I remember from class. You're not much of a reader. No. Read some good books in your class, though. 
So we have to write a scene with a shape where Roy comes to the house. It's like a 1950s lesbian pulp novel. Their tawdry love could only flourish in the shadows. I like Roy. He's funny. Allison, find something to do. I'm practicing. And we would comb the book for clues about how we want to construct that, but we would have to make it up. The kids playing in the funeral home, you know, we we had to figure out dramatically what had to what we needed to establish in that scene, comb the book for clues, and then just make things up. And for me, the model for the way those kids were and the model for small Allison, I mean, we were also drawing from our own lives all the time. You know, it's you know, Janine sometimes says like she can't even remember like what things on the stage came from her childhood, my childhood, or Allison's childhood. And for me, a lot of the thing about the kids was stories I heard about my ex-girlfriend's big Irish Catholic family and my knowledge of them and the way that they played as kids. And the tomboy that she was when she was a little kid, she was my model for small Allison, actually. When Allison's family came to see it at the public, it was really intense. It was really intense. And it was great, but I think we had to put out of our minds that there were these real people out there. You know, it's a moral gray area to make work out of other people's lives. And every artist has to make their own, they have to decide what they're going to do and come to terms with themselves about it and with their families. Allison did that with her family. And we just accepted that as her deal, not ours. But when her family came, and these people, and Bruce's sister came, and and her brothers came and they look like him. It gets a little more and real. It's yeah, it was I mean the sense of the responsibility was just like I mean Janine I watched Janine literally like walk into a wall. She was so stressed out about it. I mean the family has been amazing about it. And you know, the first time we sent work to Allison, I said I just before you listen to it, I just want you to remember that there are inventions and there are conflations and you know, we had to make stuff up. She was like, "Thank you for reminding me." And then after she heard it, she said to me and Janine and she said it, you know, as we continued to work, she said, "I I don't know how to explain it. I can see that it's invented, but it feels true. It feels like what happened." I think that was because we kept drawing from the book. We that was our goal. And and the you know, for the family, the family is you know, they are as she writes them in the book. And as we write them in the thing also, they're disconnected from their emotions. But musicals, the music lifts all that emotion to the surface. And the family, they had a quite cathartic experience around it. Their experience was that they mourned, they had a vehicle for mourning what happened in a way they hadn't before. Oh, I have goosebumps. Yeah. The song, at the, you can, I don't have a question, I just have a comment. But the At the Light is like, that I'm not a musical theater person to be honest. Um, that totally like blew Convert. it open for me. Yeah, it was uh, that that piece is so beautiful. Telephone wire, run and run. Telephone wire, sun down on the creek. Park. One of the most unique things about this production is the fact that it is performed in a 360 degree stage, also known as theater in the round. This means that audience members are sitting and watching from all angles. Set pieces like couches and side tables are lowered beneath, rolled around, moved on and off and around stage. Every audience member is experiencing a different viewpoint, and there isn't one that is better than the other. Like you could say, so how does it feel to know that you and I are both... Hey, yeah. where do you want to go?
In a scene where Allison visits home from college and takes what would be a final car ride with her father, the two simply sit on a bench that moves around the stage, but feels so much like a cab of a pickup truck. Even when their backs are to some audience members, the visual is beautiful, as they are silhouetted by light. It makes for a pretty emotional scene, as Allison sings the song, perfectly illustrating her deep desire to address her father about the fact that they are both gay, and anticipating when to do it on this night drive that they are taking. Director of Fun Home, Sam Gold, was the one who pushed for this theater in the round format. As someone who wasn't ever into musicals, he was unaware how uncommon it was for a musical to be performed in this way. But with a talented production and stage crew, he made this feat happen. People don't do musicals in the round. Uh, it's very, very difficult, particularly difficult because of the sound. And our sound designer, Kai Harada, like, it's crazy what he did. That stage is in zones, and then there are little micro speakers all through the house because you have to, if you're that close to people, you can hear their actual voices. And then because of the speed that sound travels, you have to make sure that everybody's hearing everything at the same time and that it's not echoing. And then some people are closer to the orchestra, and then you're, and then people turn their backs on you. And the, the way that, how even that sound is, that is all hail Kai Harada. I mean, that is amazing that he did that. I mean, and not one person... From watch like I don't think anyone's missing out. Like everyone's getting a little bit of a different experience because that's right. of 360, but there's not one that's better than the other. No, I mean Sam's really a master, and the designers, you know, also lighting design in 360 degrees. I don't even know how Ben Stanton did it. How do you do that? You know, how do you make everybody feel the same thing when now some people are in side light, some people in front light, some people in backlight? How do you do it? I don't know. They, it was really amazing to watch. I, I have to. I love that about theater. I love that particularly about tech. Is like. It's this ancient form, these arcane skills within it. Everybody gets together in this room for a couple of weeks, and then everybody's doing the same thing. But everybody then is, each one of these people is deep into their own field of expertise that nobody else knows how to do. And then everybody just sits there and looks at this thing you're making up, and everybody's like, how can I make that better? How can I make that better? Is collaborating ever difficult for you? And if so, like, what, what do you think makes a good collaborator, you yourself? Yeah, it's difficult if the collaborators are bad. Um, I love collaborating. I really love it. This, I believe the secret to co- collaboration is that you have to know, and sometimes you don't know when you do one project, but you need to ultimately know that you share the same aesthetic values with the people you're collaborating with. If you trust their aesthetic it's more than taste, it's values. It's what kind of work, you know, there's morality to work. If you trust people in that way, that they're on the same page as you or that you have an overlapping set of concerns, then you can do what we did on Fun Home, which is, you know, somebody would suggest something and other people might say, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're saying. I can't picture it. Can you show me? And then you always look at it. And see, you always let somebody play it out. And then you can argue it. Then you can say yes or no. And it was a thing I really had to learn. I didn't know that when I started. That what a number of minds can come up with is so much more. I mean, it's so thrilling. It's so much more than any one mind can do on their own. It's just so exciting. You just can make such amazing things when interesting people are contributing to it. 
I've never heard anyone articulate that you're working with a set of it's like a moral thing. Like, can you expand on that a little bit more? And like, what moral? Like, what do you and Janine share in that? I have to think about it probably a little bit. I mean, one thing I guess is there is work can be glib, and it can claim to be about other people when it's really about the cleverness of the person creating the work, and sometimes that can be a very subtle distinction. And it can actually hold people, you know, hold your characters out for a very subtle feeling of superiority to those characters. I strive for my work not to do that. So that would be one thing, to work with someone who feels attuned to that or would be concerned about that so that you could try to root that out. In terms of what what, a per, what an artist's individual concerns are, I think you want to know that the person you're working with shares, you know, uh, Janine had not written about lesbians before. Sam had not done a play that was about this thing before. You didn't notice her at first, but I saw her the moment she walked in. She was a delivery woman. She came in with a hand cart full of packages. She was However, their interest in understanding this other circumstance, this other way of walking through the world. You know, it was very important to me that butchness, for instance, be clearly presented. I didn't really know how to do that. But in order for that to happen, Janine and Sam had to come to a very deep understanding of what that is, how it manifests, how it feels to be inside of it. That's what they acquired. They got that kind of deep, granular understanding. You know, they were eager to take that in. And your keys, oh, your ring of keys. So I think that's also part of that thing. You know, what do you really want to know? How deeply do you want to know other people? How deeply do you want to know experiences? I mean, this is, this is one moral difference. Like, you can want to tell a story in which everybody in the world is the same. And everything in the world is just like everything else. That's a story people really like to tell. Or you can want to tell a story about how things are not the same and yet equally human. Do you want to talk about differences between us and articulate those things? And that's, a, that's an artistic value that's important, I think. Thank you to Lisa Crone for enlightening us on this world of theater and for writing such an important, meaningful piece that brought the two of us and just about everyone else in the theater to both laughter and tears. We won't forget it. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out more about Lisa. And visit funhomebroadway.com to find out how and when you can see Fun Home for yourself. This show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network, and this episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, Annie Lane Sheldon, and sound design is by Billy Weresnick. The music you heard in this episode was written by our very own guest, Lisa Crone, composed by her dear friend and collaborator, Janine Tesori, and performed by the Fun Home cast. Thank you to Fun Home, who sponsored this episode and gave us the opportunity to see an incredible show and meet Lisa Crone. And thank you for listening to She Does.